Today marks the end of the first half of our study of the Gospel of John, and next week, Easter begins the second half. You might be a half-full or a half-empty person and think, yay, or sad, depending on how that is for you. We are uh, in chapter 10, the last half of it, so you can find your way there. You can follow on the screen. If you want to use one of the Bibles that is provided for you in the pew in front of you, it's found on page uh, 1,141. Our text, uh, again, comes from chapter 10 and is going to go all the way uh, to the end of that chapter. One of the things that we provided for you for the first half of our study of the Gospel of John was a devotional. Uh, it looks very much on the outside like the bulletin because the theme has been uh, God's love for us. You can pick up part two today out in the Welcome Center. It's a, a devotional guide that takes you through these texts that we are going to study over the next uh, three or four months uh, together, beginning with next week's uh, lesson. And so part two is available for you to pick up. Uh, Cheryl Mullis and Isaac Vineyard were responsible for uh, doing that study along with what we are studying on Sunday morning. And so uh, please take advantage of that, if you will. I'm going to again read from uh, chapter 10 of John's Gospel, beginning in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is not, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent, Into the world you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not going, doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. 
And many came to him and they said, John uh, did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. We get a lot of questions, or at least I do, over things that are said and done here in the church. And over the last few weeks, one of the common questions is this. Do I have to know the culture in which the Bible is written in order to understand it? That is, if you remember a few weeks ago, I I, I said the context in which Jesus is teaching is the celebration or often called the Festival of Booths or the Festival or Tabernacle. And and one of the... uh, one of the rites or one of the, the rituals of that particular festival was that they would take water from the Pool of Siloam and they would bring it into the temple and pour it onto the altar, symbolizing God's provision and presence to them. And it's at that moment that Jesus announces uh, to everyone in the temple, I'm the living water. He who drinks of the water I have will never thirst again. Or, or the other one toward... Uh, another day of uh, celebration, one of the things they did was they, they built these very tall columns and on the top they put these bowls with oil and lit them so at night the whole temple was lit up and that men would dance around those all night long. And in the morning Jesus walks in and says, I'm the light of the world. Let me give you the short and the long answer of what I've been saying when people ask that question. Do I need a degree from seminary in order to understand my Bible? No, that's what you pay me for. But the long answer is this. It's really a, 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 what we call a principle of interpretation. And that is, though the Bible was written for all time, That is, it doesn't matter what era you live in or what culture you live in. The Bible is written to you. But we also say it was written in a time. That is, when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came into a culture. He came into a time. And therefore, Jesus is using a lot of things that are going on, that are on the people's minds, to teach them about who he is and what he came to do. And today's no different. It's a different festival. It's not the festival of booths. It's called, in verse 22, the the festival of dedication. It's not called that today. It's called Hanukkah today. And what it is about is that 167 years before Jesus, Syrians had invaded Israel and particularly sacked Jerusalem. They killed a lot of Jews. A number of other Jews, in order to simply survive, they became collaborators. But most of the people just lost hope. Because they were again being occupied by a foreign enemy who didn't just come in and rule them, but destroyed their city. And worst of all, they trampled the temple. They went into the temple and destroyed many of the beautiful artifacts and things that were used in worship, and they began to make sacrifices on the very altar that they were to make sacrifices. They made sacrifices to their own gods, and they called that a desecration. And that upset them more than anything. 
So in 167 BC, there was a revolution against the Syrians, a rebellion. The tyrant was thrown out. The, they, were, they were freed. And the very first thing they did when, in 167, three winters after uh, the Syrian invasion, they went into the temple and purified it. They, they took all of the Syrian artifacts out. They brought back and repaired the things that had been destroyed. And they, and they made sacrifices again to make the temple pure. Because they felt like God's presence had left and they wanted him back with them. It started in an annual celebration. It wasn't asked in scripture. It wasn't asked by God. It wasn't instituted by God. It just simply because the people were so moved by the liberation that they started an annual celebration called the Festival of Dedication, which we call Hanukkah today, in order to remember that liberation. Eight-day party, whole week. Most of their festivals were eight days. This is another one that's eight days, which is why when you look at the menorah, it has eight wings or eight different uh, parts with one center uh, candlestick. The, 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 the ninth one is to, to uh, 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 pay homage to the moving of the Spirit that came and back into the temple as they desired into their temple. But the other... Uh, eight are to represent the eight days. And I remember as a, uh, as a kid having uh, a Jewish friend and wishing that we had eight days for Christmas. Because you know they get a present on every day. And we only got one on Christmas. But it wasn't just simply a celebration of liberation or a victory. It was also a celebration of kings. Because one of the things they did with the hero that led that rebellion, a guy named Judas Maccabus, is they made him king. And they didn't just make him king. They made all of his descendants kings. They created a hundred-year dynasty that was only replaced when the Romans invaded and installed Herod the Great. What's amazing is that if you take into account the Old Testament promise that the only kings of Israel would be the descendants of David. Judas Maccabus was not related to David. He was not of the line of David. But they were so moved by his heroism in freeing them that they made him king. And But not only him, his descendants. So when Herod the Great becomes king, one of the things he does is he marries someone in the household of Judas. Just to say that the king goes on. So every time a Jew celebrated Hanukkah, they're celebrating liberation, but they're also celebrating their kings. Inner stage left, Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus as the good shepherd. This week he's Jesus the king, the true king. What's ironic about Hanukkah is that it's a celebration of their kings and inner the king, the true king. There's an irony of celebrating liberation when Jesus came to bring liberation. If you want to know what the answer to Hanukkah is, it's Christmas. The whole idea of the 
loss of the presence of God and, and the celebration of the return of the presence of God, is that not what Emmanuel is? God with us, the incarnation? So, you can start celebrating Hanukkah because Christmas is the answer to the desire of a king and the desire of our liberation that comes with Emmanuel. Our text answer raises and then answers two questions. It first raises the question of who is Jesus? Are you the Christ is the actual question. But then Jesus' answer raises a question when he says, look at my works, examine my works. It raises the question, what are his works? So those are the two questions. Who is the Christ or who is Jesus? And then simply, what are his works? What are these works? And so in our stage left, Jesus in verse 23, where do we find him? We find him in the temple, but where in the temple? The colonnades of Solomon. It's on the eastern side of the temple. It's a pretty famous part because you go to Acts and that is where Peter is preaching the gospel for the first time uh, uh, to the gathered followers of Jesus after his death and resurrection. The Christians began to gather until they were told they couldn't gather there anymore on the east side of the temple under the colonnades of Solomon. And here is Jesus standing there and some of his followers are gathered there, but also some of the religious leaders have also gathered there with Jesus. And they've got a question for him. Are you the Christ? Now, they're not asking, please, don't, they're not asking that question because there's some doubt in their mind that, that, that they don't know is Jesus the Christ. They, they believe he's not Jesus the Christ. And so there's some disingenuousness about asking this question. What they're really asking, if you can hear the sarcasm in their voice, or at least in this case, in the writing, is, are you going to continue to annoy us, Jesus? Every time we're coming to the temple during our, our festivals, you're there doing some teaching. You're saying, I'm, I, I'm the, the living water. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the light of the world. And, and now you're, you're saying you're the king. He's going to say way more than that in this passage. But he's tying himself to the festival of dedication. And they're saying, you're annoying us. You're getting crowds. People are following you. And that means they're not following us. Or at least you're a distraction. They don't believe him. And Jesus' initial response to them is not answering their question directly. He says, examine my works. Look at my works and see if they're not of the Father. What is he talking about? Briefly, he's talking about what he just had done. A lame man now walks. A blind man now sees. In a, in a chapter next week, we'll pick up, a dead man is going to be alive again. This is not the first time Jesus has heard that question. He's heard it from the lips of the disciples of John the Baptist. In Luke 7, remember... John's gospel isn't in necessarily a chronological order. It's in a thematic order. But Luke 7 comes before this. And Luke 7 is a description of John the Baptist who's gone to prison 
because he said some things to the king that the king didn't want to hear, and he's going to have him in a few days executed. So he sends his disciples to see Jesus and ask him, are you the Christ or should we be looking for another? And Jesus gives an answer. He quotes Isaiah and he says this, go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. What have they seen and what do they have heard? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. It's quotations from two parts of Isaiah. And what he's saying is, you know Isaiah. Of all the books of the Old Testament outside of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the next book that they know, Isaiah. Why? The book that promises the Messiah in detail. Lots of uh, of prophecies about the Messiah coming and how to know when he comes and what he'll do when he comes. Check out Isaiah 53. You, you, you see it clearly. Isaiah 9. Lots of places. But one of them is when you start seeing dead people walking, when you start seeing blind people see, deaf people hear, lepers cleansed, then you'll know the Christ is in your midst. They knew that. The problem isn't that they didn't know what the scriptures said. The problem is they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ. But why? Jesus tells them in verse 26 and 27. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You hear what he's saying? He said, you've got it backwards. You think because you don't believe is the reason that you're not my people. That's not what he's saying in verses 26 and 27. He's saying the reason you don't believe is because you are not my people. Because you don't know my voice, because you don't hear me. That's the reason you don't believe. If Because if you were mine, and here's your, here's your assurance of of your salvation, here's the the justification for you, is that if you believe, it is because you are already His. That way it's in no way dependent upon you. Not one ounce of your effort. That's what He says in this passage. But initially, Jesus goes way beyond that simple answer of examining my works. He says something to them that causes them to get really upset to the point where they want to stone him. They want to kill him. He begins to speak in verse 29 of God as my father. You don't know in the 21st century how revolutionary that was in the first century. We hear it all the time in evangelical churches. We, we say, our father who art in heaven, how would be thy name? When we pray, our Father, that was so unheard of. No one spoke of God as my Father. In fact, they weren't even allowed to say his Hebrew name, Yahweh. What they would do is they'd use the word Lord. They would use a a, a derivative of Yahweh. But they thought that the name was so holy, so special for special use only, that they weren't even to say it or to write it. 
Let me, let me kind of give you an understanding of how holy, what holy means. That is, something so special, so different, that it's only to be used for that purpose and never to be used in a common way. I had a buddy who, who loved to fly fish. And, and, and when he, you fly fish, you have to wear waders because you can get, you typically are in a cold stream. And if your legs go numb, it's not really a, a fun activity and quite can be dangerous. And so you wear a waders into the water as you fly fish. And his waders as a kid, a teenager, got holes in them. And so they would have been uh, no good. They would have filled with water and it would have been as if he didn't even have waders. But John's dad was a Baptist minister. And so what would be right here, for those of you who have never been to a Baptist church, is a baptismal pool where people who came to Christ, made a profession of faith, would be baptized. And so this pastor, John's dad, had a special pair of waders that he only wore for baptisms. He hung them on the back of his office so that his suit wouldn't get wet so that he could have the baptisms and then he could come out and finish the worship service. Well, John had the idea, well, I know where I can get some waiters that don't have holes in them. So he grabbed a hold of his dad's waiters and he's on his way and his dad sees him across the parking lot and says, John, where are you going with those? And John says, I'm going fishing. And he said, not with those waiters, they're holy waiters. <laughs> that is... They were only to be used for this purpose. And that made them special, set apart for, for, this, for God's special use. I want you to know something that Peter says about you. He says, don't you know you are a holy people? You are a chosen race? A people for God's own possession? Did you hear what he's saying about being special? You are so special that you can be spoken of as holy and therefore you are not for common use. You are for special use of God. That's how that name, to to call him father, was worse than taking fingernails on a chalkboard to a Jew. It caused such dissonance in their mind and their hearts that immediately it says that he picked up a stone to stone him for blasphemy because they, they thought he was taking something common, I mean something holy, and, and dragging it into the mud and to use it for a common purpose like we would even call your, your dad. How dare you make God as common as your father? But he doesn't just say that, does he? He doesn't just say he's my father. That's enough to stone him. But he says something else in verse 30. I and the father are one. He doesn't, he doesn't simply claim God is my father. That's, that's horror enough to the people of the first century. But he's also saying, you know, I'm calling God my father. But I'm also saying that God and I are one. And therefore, I am God. There's a huge debate in our culture. I I don't know, most evangelicals are not part of this debate, don't attend this conference. But annually, there's a conference on who is Jesus. 
Evangelicals are not invited. They're always asking this question. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? In fact, most of the years they come out and they reaffirm that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's as if they had never read these verses. Look at verse 31 and, and then I'll, I'll follow it up with how he declares. In 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Why did they want to stone him? Verse 33. It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you. That is, Jesus, you're not a good example and we're going to stone you for being a good example. But for blasphemy. Because you, Jesus, being a man, make yourself God. Not a God, but God. We in the 21st century may be debating who Jesus is. But they were clear in the first century who Jesus claimed to be. There was no doubt. They're not thinking about, planning about, picking up stones to stone Jesus because there's a big debate of whether Jesus claimed to be God. That might be in the 21st century, but it was not in the first century. They wanted to stone him and the only right they had to stone him was for blasphemy. And so for Jesus to claim to be God, they knew it. And that is why they wanted to do it. And therefore, Hanukkah is about the presence of God and who God is. And that's why Christmas is such an answer to Hanukkah. Which brings us to the second question. If the first question is, who is Jesus? I'm God. The Father and I are one. Well... The evidence of that are his works. He kept saying over and over, look at my works. Even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works that I do of my father who sent me. It reminds me of a story I read. Actually, I read it a couple of weeks ago and I thought it would be good. So I I held it for this particular message. It's a story of a composer who dies. But before he dies, he writes a piece of music, dedicates it to the violin guild of the city. That is, he wrote a piece of music that was supposed to be played only by a violin solo. He was a violinist. He was the president of the guild. He left it for them as a dedication that they might play for the city. Well, there's a problem. It's so complicated, it's near impossible to play. In fact, no one in the guild can play the music. And they are embarrassed the very violin guild that he was the president of can't even play the music by which their president wrote. Many years later, on the streets of the city, a street musician begins to play this music that has never been heard. They Just the violin uh, guild know the notes because they studied it and tried to play it and were unable to play it. It was wild and strange. It was beautiful and sweet. And when he was done, when he was finished, spontaneous applause broke out all over the town square where he was playing, all except for the violin guild. They were furious. They asked, how dare you? That's our music. Who are you? He says, I'm the son of the composer. 
And before he died, he taught me how to play this piece. And when he was done, he left the city and that piece of music was never heard in that city again. You're getting it. It should be fairly obvious for you. Jesus is the Son. God has written a piece of music that only the Son could play. How do you know that? It's what Jesus accuses them of in uh, verse 34. It's a quotation from Psalm 82, which is a much bigger amplification of this point. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law. I said you are God's. What is he saying? He's saying, although you Jewish leaders claim to be the musicians of the city, you can't play the music that God has composed for you to play. In fact, no one can play it, though everyone is attempted to play. Our inability to keep God's law is the music that God has written. God has written a beautiful, wild, and sweet, and strong piece of music called His law that no man has ever played the way in which God wrote and composed that music. In fact, we know that because that's what Romans tells us. Paul writes in Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law was like God's music for humanity to play. But we have failed miserably at playing the music. That's what the Sermon on the Mount shows us. You know, they think that they're keeping the law. And Jesus says, okay, well, let me, let me, let me illustrate for you if, how well you're keeping the law. You say you have not committed murder, but if you hate your brother, then you have committed murder. You say you haven't committed adultery, but if you've lusted, then you've committed adultery. He goes on and on and takes these beautiful composition and shows the depth and complexity of the notes to show that they're not even playing half the notes. And that's what has made us so miserable, is that we know in our heart of hearts, not only have we not played the music that God has composed, but no one can. And that makes us miserable the most. And yet someone has come to town And he has picked up his violin and he is playing all the notes the way the composer wrote them. He begins to do what we cannot do. He plays the music the way we cannot play it. It is wild and it is strange. It's beautiful and it's sweet. We have never heard it played before, though we've we've attempted. Many who have heard him play were embarrassed They were embarrassed because they knew they could not play it. That's the Jewish leaders of his time. And it's true today. Many people hear of Jesus and their response to Jesus is, I reject you. I don't believe in you. Because he reminds them of their misery. But yet others have found his playing to be a salve. You know what a salve is? It's a a healing. It's It's a medicine that comes into the wound of the soul, into our misery and heals 
and by faith, they knew that He played it for them. Verses 37 and 42 deal with this idea of the work of faith. He says twice, and many believed in Him. Jesus didn't come merely to play the music. In fact, I, I think that would be worse than if he didn't come at all. If all he did is he come in to play the music, we would have found out that someone can play the music even if I can't. And that may, puts misery upon misery. To know that we can't play it, but know that there is someone who can. To know it can be played, but that I can't is worse than knowing that it cannot be played. Jesus is not just coming to play. Jesus came to play it for us in our place so that we can enjoy the music the way it was meant to be played. Played the way that God wrote it. This is the requirement of the law. This is the requirement of God that the law be played in the way in which it was written perfectly. Not one misnote but also so that we can receive the applause as if we played it ourselves. He didn't just play it so that we could enjoy it. He played it so that we could get the credit for it by faith. This is what I mean by the work of faith. It almost sounds like an oxymoron, work and faith. But that's what the work of faith is. It is to believe that what he did is what we have done. Not because we've done it, but it had been transferred to us. And that's by faith. And I wish that was a, a once and done thing. I wish that the, the elders could get together with you and you share that, yes, I believe that Jesus played the law f- for me in my place and now it is if I kept every jot and tittle of the law And that was a once and done thing. They could give you a certificate and you can walk it out and you can show it to everybody. That's not how the work of faith works. The work of faith isn't a certificate or a prayer. It's not a conference or a workshop. It's not a, a special service that you can attend. It is something that you do every day, all day long. Because it's a work of faith. Every day you wake up and you want to what? Self-justify. And it's not like self-justifies on one end and faith is on the other. But we mix the two. On Sunday, we celebrate what Christ has done for us. But on Monday, we're talking about what we can do. As if what we do gets God to applaud. When the only applause is for what Christ has done. And that has implications for the way we live, so don't hear that it means do nothing. But it's all about the order. It's all about what comes first. We receive by faith what Christ has done for us in our place, as if we had done it. And then we, in response to that, live in light of that reality. That's how they're different from one another. And therefore, worship, when we gather that one day out of seven, it's the spontaneous applause for Jesus playing. 
the rehearsing every Sunday what Jesus has done for us and we can hear the music. The way it was meant to be played with all of the notes. And sometimes it's wild. Sometimes it's sweet. And sometimes it's, it's out of control. And sometimes it's so melodically harmonious to our ears. The lawgiver gave a law that one day he knew his son would be the one who would have to keep. It is though the composer knew all along that it was his son who would be playing the piece that he wrote. That's what's before us. That's what we believe. And that's where liberation comes. Liberation from all the things that bind our hearts and and cause us to stumble is the music's already been played. Are you listening? And then tomorrow morning when you wake up and you put your feet on the on the floor for the first time and, and all of the thoughts of all the things that you've got to do this day and they scream out to you, justify your existence. You're able to play that music again as if you played it yourself. It's a work of faith. That's what we're doing on Palm Sunday. Our King has come. Our King is coming. And between those two dates, we play the music. Not ours, His. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this true gospel that grips our hearts but causes us to obey, causes us to live lives worthy of this calling. And Father, it takes faith that you have given us to keep hearing the music that Jesus has already played, to know that as if we played it ourselves, the law has been fulfilled in its fullness and we have been found acceptable because of his works. Help us grow in our faith so that we don't live miserable lives. Miserable because we hear the music that no one can play, that we know we cannot play, that we have failed to play. And trust in the one who has played the music for us. In Jesus' name, amen.